The title for this evening talk is Befriending Fear. Uh, in a way, this is a, an appendix or a footnote to yesterday's talk. As you may remember, if you happen to be here yesterday, the, yesterday's talk was entitled Love Unbound, and it refers referred to how sometimes in constructing an identity of two or more people, an identity for a family, we end up bound together so tightly that there's a sense of being not just connected but strapped together, shackled together. And I talked about how this develops, how that can come to be in various circumstances. How this um, fabrication of an identity of two or more people as separate from the rest, which masquerades as love, really can become a prism. And how important it is in, to be able to hatch out, to use an expression I used yesterday, to hatch out of this tightness, to dismantle this strapping. And I also mentioned the obstacles. What gets in the way of producing the change, the growth that needs to happen? And one of these obstacles, as I mentioned, is fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of the death of that identity that we saw carefully constructed. So, that's how I came to this topic. Now, fear shows up in, in many circumstances, of course. And one of the circumstances where it often and for some perhaps surprisingly arises this is in the course of meditation, in the course of the practice, sitting practice or whatever form the practice takes. In fact, this makes sense. On the one hand, the practice is a practice of awareness. And so we become quite aware of what we are feeling, what the the color of our mind state is. And so we cannot ignore fear when it comes our way. But the other reason why fear comes to visit us often enough while we are on the cushion is because being on the cushion is precisely a process of dismantling 
of taking apart those props that we have unwisely used up to then to support ourselves and and the practice challenges them. The practice challenges this scaffolding that many of us, I would say all of us at some time or another, have constructed to support ourselves. The scaffolding that we often confuse with who we are. The scaffolding that is the I, the me, the mine, and seems so essential. Even if we don't come into the practice with this determination, the practice is designed to undermine those such structures. Let me explain. The practice invites you to be in the moment. That's perhaps the main feature of the practice. Be present in the moment with whatever is happening at this moment. This, all these supports that we create for ourselves, this what I've been calling scaffolding, exists, on the other hand, on time. It's only present as supported. Its columns, its pillars, are the supports of the past, who we were, who we think we were, actually, and the pillar of the future, who we expect to be. That's what gives it stability, if phony stability, imaginary stability, but makes us believe that this is me, this is who I am, this is where I'm going to be. And we deal with life on the basis of who I am. In the moment, pulls the rug under all this construction. In the moment, there are no supports of past and present. We just have to look at what's actually happened. We have to turn off the tapes that are played in our mind that try to convince us of who we are and how mad we are and so and so and what a bad person so and so is and what a great person so and so is and fix things this way. In the moment, there's no such support. Scaffolding. Falls down. And fear comes in. It's a little bit like uh, these cartoons uh, where there's a character, is it Road Runner or somebody like it, and it's running, 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 and runs off a cliff and keeps running, and then looks down, <gasps> sees the precipice underneath. So, that's the fear. Great difference, of course, is that in this fear, there's no ground to smash yourself against. But still, you certainly have lost that support. 
just like in the formal meditation practice, the practice, the family practice actually, the family life, just to give it a more simple name, is another place where we can really not hide from the truth. And family life doesn't in itself undermine structures this way, but it does because it constantly brings us face to face with the need to change. The growth of the children, the changing moods of the children, the changing of relationships within the family, with time. And again, the structures resist. There's a fixedness of structures that I was talking about last night that, that make events feel threatening. And, and this is a great blessing, in disguise perhaps, but a great blessing, because those threats force us to come to terms with the truth in some way. Threats that sometimes take the form of threat of separation from a partner, from a child, even from parents, as time goes on. Threat that somebody, a loved one, will be harmed. And of course, it creates a very understandable fear. And there's a, the threat too, curiously enough, that somebody will be too successful. There's a threat of success that does indeed, as some people testify, threaten the relationship within the couple. Because it's change. So, when fear comes, the alternatives are just to name the most obvious one. One is to contract and be paralyzed by it. And the other one is to listen to fear as our ally, as a harbinger of liberating change. So, this is really the issue of this talk and the title too, how to befriend fear, how to make fear our ally. And, and the first thing we have to do to befriend anybody is to get to know them, get to know them. To really understand a little bit what's this fear about? Where does it spring from? One of the sources of fear 
sometimes obvious, other times just lurking there in the wings, is a fear of death. Fear of death of ourselves, fear of death of others. But more than just the fear of just physical death, more poignant than that is the fear of death of the image that we have made for ourselves and death of the characters that support that image. It is common enough, I think, and I remember having had that fear when I was a child, and I remember somebody here in this uh, retreat mentioning that to me about her child. This is uh, the child fearing the death of a parent. In these two examples I've given, it was the death of the mother. Just, I remember fantasizing as a self-torture with the death of my mother. There's no, no, no probability of that. In fact, my mother lived to be 96, and it's a pretty long life. But as a child, it was a kind of a, a not a nightmare, a daymare, a daydream nightmare for me. And I was in high school already, and it's, it's quite common. And there's this gripping anxiety about that. The other side of, uh, of this fear of death is a story, a first-hand story that was told to me by somebody who was a monk in Thailand. And uh, at that time, there was an, a very old monk which was, who was dying, and in fact, who died in the lap of my friend. And one of his last or near last commentaries was to say, um, like a, in amusement, being amused by this thought saying, the king of death is looking for me all over the place and he cannot find me. There's nothing to find. Nothing to find. No self-construction to find. But we we need to we need to look at at what how we invest ourselves in in this dying or not dying process this fear of dying really we, how we invest ourselves in the fate of our bodies something that you know we we should know from the very beginning we we only get them 
on lease, it's a long-term lease, and, and after so many years they get repossessed. I mean, what's the uh, big news? And so, yeah, if we grasp all this to our existence, our identity actually, that identity that the king of death couldn't find in that story, with great anxiety and really unaware of the alternatives. But before I talk about the the true alternatives, the more a very frequent alternative that we adopt when we feel fear is to avoid it. The alternative, not very skillful for sure, of avoidance, kind of a strategy. Not so much of avoiding the potential harm and danger that we are thinking about. It's not an issue of how to avoid being run over by a car or being killed. It's how to avoid thinking about death. Certainly the alternative that I find, the only alternative I could think of when I was a child is so good when I turned off this fear about the death of my mother. Of course I contracted myself very much around that ever since. But still this strategy is one of trying to navigate through life avoiding, circumventing the reefs, the sandbanks of fear, in fear of fear. We can navigate around. We can numb ourselves, really numb ourselves. And anyway, so much of contemporary life is about numbing ourselves. The, you know, the mainstream or, or ordinary contemporary life. And the other alternative is extreme control, obsessive control of self and others, demanding perfection so that our mind will do and think and feel only what we tell it to do, to think and to feel. Um, I often find material it seems to be pertinent in Christina's book, Woman Awake, Woman Awake. She has throughout the years collected things that she has been told in the course of retreats. This is one of those testimonies. And this woman, was, um, I'm sure it's not a real name, Kelsey, was telling the following. She says, 
She said, I was the perfect candidate for, for perfection. I brought to my spiritual path innumerable depth of anxiety and guilt. I was so tired of being a victim. It was a true revelation to be offered a path to being a master. I saw the way to be in control of my life. I just had to become perfect. I wasn't going to let anything distract me from my goal. When my mother was sick, I praised myself for being unmoved by the pleas from my family to come home. When I went through periods of doubt and anxiety, I congratulated myself for overcoming them. When my menstrual cycles stopped, I even felt I had finally managed to overcome my body. I had so much transcendent, it kept me constantly busy, and I enjoyed pitting myself against anything that challenged my pursuit. It was a lonely path and time, but I even managed to quell those feelings most of the time. It took a long time for me to face the dishonesty of my pursuit. I was trying to become inhuman. I didn't know how to be strong, only how to overcome. The perfection of myself was hard for me to live with, impossible for others. So, it's not a question of overcoming fear. And certainly, it's not a question of disguising it, which is another strategy. Like, you know, fear becoming, for instance, anger. Or fear for one thing being actually fear for something else. A little bit like our mind does in dreams, you know. doesn't really show us what we are actually afraid of unless we can decode that. So, if these are forms of avoid avoidance, what are the ways of, of really looking at fear in the eye? And here I cannot resist the pun. Looking at fear in the eye and looking at fear in the eye. Not by avoiding it, not by doing battle with it, overcoming it, but by accepting, accepting, embracing it in a way, befriending it, and not acknowledging it's there. Even, even allowing it to take a tangible form, as it often does by lodging itself in our body, and then just checking it out. How is fear just there in our body? Yesterday, some of you may have been 
in the, I think it was in the afternoon that Marcia was, uh, no, when was it, that you were doing this with the teen group? Last this night. Trust, that, last night. Last night. Marcia was leading the teen group, uh, you check whether I'm telling this correctly, in um, an exercise course called Trust Fall. Really an exercise on, on being with fear. Um, the person in question, and uh, several people take turns to be in that position, stands up in a ledger or some kind of a uh, surface about this high from another surface down here. So there's a, a fall, maybe this high, maybe less. And a group of people, in this case the teenagers, stand down there making like a, a, a bed with their hands to catch the person who is going to fall. Now, this person stands back to this uh, precipice, eyes closed, I suppose, I suppose, and, and allow herself, in this case, Marcia, to just fall back. Standing, not sitting. I mean, it's very easy for me to sit here and fall back. And standing, allow myself, I would allow myself to fall back, knowing that there's a, a, a big gap. There's a precipice, really, behind me. And trusting that the people will be there to catch me. So it's an exercise in trust, perhaps primarily, but also an exercise in allowing fear to be there. And, and I, I noticed a lot of people wanted to participate. Everybody. Everybody wanted to participate. So there is a, a knowledge that, that this is something that needs to be done. For myself, I, I remember one exercise in fear that was quite excruciating, but I, I knew I had to do it. I had, uh, it's about six years ago, it's been some time ago, but no. I haven't forgotten it, <laughs> not at all. Um, I went into the um, rainforest of Ecuador and without really knowing what I was getting into in any way. And um, a plane landed in some a little strip and from there to get to, to a, a mission, a Catholic mission, uh, which was the only population in that near area, I discovered that I had to cross a suspension bridge. Um, the bridge wasn't very narrow, it was about uh, what, three feet wide, and the precipice was quite uh, impressive down below. And uh, it was made with uh, um, whatever, pieces of wood that were strung together with each other. So it was rather wavy, but none of this was a problem, except that it had no, nothing to hold on to. <laughs> and I was terrified, absolutely terrified. But yet I had no, no choice. So fortunately I didn't arrive alone. So I asked uh, an Indian who was in fact uh, there to hold my hand. And, and with him kind of pulling <laughs> and got to the other side. It was also a, a long bridge, you know, like, like from one end to the other of this, uh, uh, this hall. 
uh, yeah, certainly wider than, than this, maybe not as long as this direction. Um, and, and I understood that this was my practice. I had to wait more than a day there before I moved somewhere else. So in that day, I came back to the bridge alone. And I stood there. I crawled along it. I did all kinds of things. But not the issue was not to cross the bridge. The issue is, can I become close to my fear? Can I look at the fear in the eye? I, I crossed six times. It, it, it was, the fear was always there. M maybe eventually you would have gone. But, um, but it, it was easier to be with the fear. And I, I, I would imagine the danger. There was a danger. And if I fell, that was it. But uh, it wasn't the danger, it was the fear. And with practice it's the same thing. We have to, when fear comes and tells us, stop this, this is dangerous. We can let that paralyze us. Or we can befriend it somehow. And, and of course, it needs to include very often befriending death, particularly if that's the sort of thing that is lurking in the wings. There's the bridge that prepares us for death. Can we explore that in our minds? After all, Death is, is not such a terribly grievous thing if we consider consider that we've been dead already long before we were born. And we have no, no issue with that. And our children were dead before they were born. And basically there's no issue with that. And our relationship did not exist before we entered. And so, why do we get so invested in all these things? Invested. We know they're going to end in the sense that our children are going to grow up and they'll probably die long after we die. We, we don't know that our relationships are going to end, but, but they will change for sure. They will end in the form that we know them now. And there's absolutely no question that our lives are going to end. Today I was curious and I looked up a dictionary because I suspected that investment meant something else. And yes, investment comes from vestire in Latin, to dress. 
So to invest is to dress into, to put on that image, really, to put on the image of this and that. So we invest in our impermanency. So in permanency. the practice very directly by inviting us to be present with life moment to moment makes us see through this charade makes us see that we are independently of all this so when this in some way sinks in, when, when we divest ourselves of all these impossible demands on life, then fear can collapse. It doesn't mean that fear doesn't come. It means that what I'm saying is that Fear collapses when it becomes irrelevant. That's the issue. Fear becoming irrelevant. Nothing that guides our lives. It, otherwise, it's, you know, fear is just part of our feeling life. That's all. Like anger, like happiness, like sadness, like joy. Fear. I saw in the bookstores a, a book that's been very highly promoted nowadays, you may have seen it too, called The Gift of Fear. And I uh, also seen a, it promoted in the talk shows and so on. I forgot who the author is, but it's a, it's a very fashionable book nowadays. I, so in a bookstore, I took it and paged through it. I, fortunately, I didn't buy it. <laughs> because it, although I, I love the title, I would say that's not what I'm talking about. And explain. This book is telling us that fear is a gift because it can tell us, tell us when something danger is around us. Now, there, there may be times for that, but so very often, as uh, you may have understood from my talk, fear something else. Fear something that we generate. I would agree with the title, but not insofar as fear protecting us from outside threats, but fear as some sort of a barometer, an indicator, an ally that tells us when we are moving in the direction of the truth. 
As we get closer to the truth, fear is can be a message like uh, in this uh, game where when you get closer to wherever something is hidden, you say warmer, warmer, warmer. So fear in the practice and in life, when, when you really can sense the fear, it's a good sign. It says something is happening that is significant, significant enough to threaten some of the structures of your life. See if that's what you need to do. And often enough, may not be, you know, a hundred percent sure indicator, but it's a good indicator. And and when we find a home in the moment, no other structures needed. When we, d we discover this unconditional intimacy with life, and fear stops being an issue, it has no weight. It's just there. May all beings look at fear in the eye. May all beings look at death in the eye. May all beings be free. That's it for two, three minutes, please, in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.